This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. And they sent to him Jesus, that is, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Thank you, Scott. Glad you're here. Again, good morning. Let me welcome you. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark for quite some time as a body, and, and this morning we've picked up verses 13 through 17 from the 12th chapter. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them up. The Scripture is also on the insert inside of your worship folder, and uh, it will not be, I presume, upon the screen behind me. Uh, This sermon is really about the trap and the man. Uh, This sermon is about the trap and the man. I get that from the first and the last verse of our text. The first verse says that The Sanhedrin, it's the they implied in verse 13, sent to him, Jesus implied, some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians, and their intent was to trap him. It's the only time in scripture that this word is used, and it it means to catch, it means to violently pursue, it means to hunt down, it means to snare. Their question had no truth and authenticity behind it. They were simply there, as Jesus recognized, out of hypocrisy, to trap him. Now, The Pharisees and the Herodians, they're strange bedfellows. They're a really awkward alliance. In Israel, at this time, there's really only three major political parties. The Pharisees and the Herodians and the Zealots. And the Pharisees and the Herodians absolutely hate one another. But the only thing that has brought them together in this story and put them on the same team is their disgust for Jesus and who he is and what he means for their way of life as they want to run it. And so it says in chapter three that the Pharisees were frustrated with Jesus and something he did in a synagogue. And it says they left there and they wanted to utterly destroy him. And they went and found the Herodians and began to scheme with them as to how they might kill him. So they've had some time to think about their trap. We're in chapter 12. They've been thinking about it. This sermon is also about the man, and I mean the man Jesus. At the end of their trap, which we've already read it, you already know what's going to happen. It says in the very last verse, the very last sentence, and they marveled at him. It's the only time that word is used in the whole Bible as well. It means they were astonished, astounded, beside themselves, shocked. They were out of their minds. It makes me think of watching the magician that can supposedly levitate himself and 
he walks around Vegas and finds really drunk idiots and um, he gets them to stand in front of him and then he supposedly levitates in front of them and the guys, let's say it's six male idiots, are like, no way. That is unbelievable. That is off the hook. If you're a little older, that's rad. I mean, this is what has happened in just a brief interaction to those who wanted to snare him, catch him, pursue him, and do him violently. It's about the trap and the man. It's about the ultimate trap and the ultimate man. So first, the trap. We'll keep reading. Picking up in verse 13, they, the Sanhedrin, remember last week, that's the 71 men who sit at the top of Jerusalem and Israel and the temple, the most powerful Israel's, Israelite men in the country, in Judea, let's say. So they were defeated by Jesus in their round with him last week. You'll have to listen to that sermon online or just read it for yourself. It's quite obvious. And so now they and their authority sinned. It's a word for apostle. It's where we get the idea of apostles in the church. The, from, from a physical perspective, the highest ranking authority in the church is an apostle, and that's simply because they're sent by the king. So the same word is used here that the Sanhedrin, although defeated, have now sent emissaries, as I've already mentioned, the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they desire to trap him. Now, as I told you, this is a strange relationship. This is an awkward alliance. Let me explain a little bit more about the political scene in Judea around 30 AD. In 6 AD, 25 years earlier, Rome had annexed Judea and taken it under their authority and they began to occupy it. So at this point, at 6 AD, Jerusalem is no longer, in, uh, Israel is no longer in charge of itself. It has been annexed. Essentially, Rome will come up to you and say, would you like to be annihilated or would you like to be annexed? Oh, you want to be annexed. Great. This is what that means. You're now a puppet king, Herod. You don't really have any authority. You just report to us and keep things under control there. And once this happened, the political, um, uh, the political reality in Judea at 6 AD was shattered. There was basically Pharisees, Herodians, and Zealots. As soon as Rome annexed Judea, as soon as Herod gave in to Rome and did not fight him, the Zealots said, we're not okay with this. We're not okay with Rome occupying God's land. And in fact, we're completely opposed to it. And we will begin to build a revolution that kicks Rome out. The main character in that was Judas the Galilean. And Judas the Galilean began to bring men together with him who would revolt against Rome in physical and violent ways. Well, unfortunately, Judas the Galilean did not have men or God on his side. And Rome squelched him. They crushed him. They killed him and his sons but they could not kill the fervor inside the hearts of many men who then fled to Northern Galilee and began to build armies to remove Rome. So by the time that Jesus comes in 2530 AD, there are thousands and thousands of revolutionaries who call themselves zealots, who they live in order to kick Rome out of Judea. Jesus was brought and put on a donkey by them in the triumphal entry. They're the ones that were saying, Hosanna, save us now, deliver us now. They had in mind a physical kingdom with Jesus as their physical king and them back in power and Rome gone. Not only were there zealots, but there were also, as we've mentioned, Pharisees. The Pharisees are the religious elite. They're loyal to the Jewish people, 
They were unwilling subjects to the empire. They were opponents to the Roman imperial power. By and large, they were very conservative, morally, theologically, and socially. At the same time, they're Herodians. They're the politicians of survival. They sold themselves to Rome. They support Roman imperialism. They're loyal Roman patriots. They're very liberal, morally, theologically, and socially. And while they always found one another obnoxious on every principle other than this one, they agreed in their hatred for Jesus. And oddly enough, the Pharisees and the Herodians agreed on paying taxes. We'll come back to that in a moment. And so we'll keep reading. And as we do, I'll remind you of the anatomy of a trap. Think about a bear trap. Think about what you do to try and snare a bear. Well, first you have to have some sort of claws and teeth and then you put them out in the field and when someone steps, the bear presumably steps in the middle of it, the trap closes on the leg of the bear. The bear was then chained to the ground and then as soon as he dies, the hunters can come and get him. And so they're trying to trap him. So there's these claws, but you don't just put these glimmering claws out in the field and hope that a bear happens to walk upon them. You cover the claws with camouflage. In our text, that's the flattery that we're gonna read in a moment. But not only do you put some leaves on there for some camouflage, you put some bait right in the middle. Let's say a picnic basket. I'm thinking Yogi Bear right now. (laughs) Yummy. And your hope is to entice the bear. This is the hypocrisy part. Your hope is to bring the bear into a place of complacency. Your hope is to draw him in on, on play acting and on duplicity and get him to ensnare himself in the trap. And the trap, that is the bait, excuse me, that that the Herodians and the Pharisees use is this question, yes or no, which is it? They don't ask him to explain like he does. They don't ask him to illustrate like he does. They're like, yes or no. They're trying to impale him on the horns of a dilemma. So if you will remember with me the history that is currently going on in, in 30 AD, let's pick up and read in verse 14. Just so you know, if you don't know what the word flattery means, it means excessive or insincere praise given to further one's own interests. Listen to these people who hate Jesus. Teacher, a title of respect. We know that you are true. You are truth. We know that you don't care about anyone's opinions. You don't get knotted up over approval issues. And here we are trying to give you approval. You, do not, you are not swayed by, by appearances. Literally, you don't look at men's faces. You truly teach the way of God. Now consider this irony. First, if you're new to the scriptures or Jesus, what they say is absolutely true about Jesus. Second, if what they say is true about Jesus, then the person they say it about is unlikely to be swayed by such flattery. They keep going. Is it lawful to pay taxes? It's not really the word taxes, it's the word census. Is it lawful to pay census tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? When Quirinius became governor in 5 or 6 AD and when Judea was then annexed and became a Roman-occupied land, Quirinius wanted to know how many people lived there. He wanted to know how much tax revenue was potential from the land. He wanted to know how much human capital he owned in the land. And so he instituted a poll tax. It's a head tax. It's a census tax. All right, now listen. All Roman taxes were very unpopular. But the poll tax was particularly troubling. Unlike a toll, which was charged for traveling on Roman roads, and unlike a tariff, which was levied on commercial activity, 
And unlike income tax that was taxed on personal revenue, the poll tax was a tax on people. It was a tax for having a head. It was a tax for being a citizen. It was required simply for the honor and joy and privilege of being a Roman citizen. Would you like to be annihilated or annexed? We'll take annexed. Okay, here's a list of taxes. Oh, and by the way, this is the census tax. It's your payment to us for letting you be a part of our empire. It was oppressive. It was the same amount for everyone. It was not adjusted for consumption. It was not adjusted for income. It was not adjusted for activity. It was the ultimate regressive tax. Go back to our three political parties. As you might imagine, the zealots absolutely refused to pay the tax. They saw it as an admission of Romans' right to rule, so they moved to Galilee. The Herodians had no objection to it and, in fact, supported the tax on principle, thought it was a good idea. Go figure. The Pharisees, while resenting the humiliation implied in the tax, taught their people to pay it. Is it lawful to pay census to Caesar or not? Should we pay the census or should we not? Envision the lawyer telling the witness, we don't want to hear your bright thoughts on the matter. What we'd like to hear is a yes or no answer. Are you a zealot or are you not? Are you a Herodian or are you not? Will you support the tax and lose the support of the people? Or will you refuse the tax and bring the Roman authorities down on yourself? Do you endorse Roman occupation and in so doing alienate yourself from these thousands of people that we're scared of and we can't touch you because they like you? Or are you opposed to Roman occupation and in so doing, do you take the label of insurrectionists upon yourself and gain the attention of the Roman soldiers who are here to squash insurrection? Are you a traitor or a rebel? Are you aloof to the Jewish people's needs or are you dangerous to the empire? Now, that's a heck of a trap. They had some time to think about it. It's impressive. I would not have done so well as the man. But look at our man. Let's look at this. Let's spend the rest of our time together. Let's look at how he's blunt. Let's look at how he's brilliant. And let's look at how he's beautiful. He's blunt like a king. He's brilliant like a prophet. He's beautiful like a priest. He's amazing, he's nuanced, he's complex, he's well-rounded. Think about this. He's like John Wayne, C.S. Lewis, and Shakespeare all rolled into one. He's like, if you're a little younger, Clint Eastwood, Steve Jobs, and Bono, all in one. Pick up in verse 15. But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. He knows their hypocrisy. He knows their play acting. He again answers their question and their demand for a yes, no response with a question, an illustration, and a teaching, much like last week, exactly like last week. Jesus lives out and proves the truth of their flattery. He is not swayed by appearance. He doesn't care about anyone's opinion. He doesn't say, he says in John 5, he goes, listen, I don't live off approval like you people do. He goes, I'm completely approved and steady and at peace in the love of the Father. 
He's true and he speaks truth. He's not intimidated by their power and their threats. He will not simply obey powerful people because they're powerful and can harm him. He answers them, but not on their terms. He will not give a yes, no answer. Life's too complicated and nuanced for that. So our man Jesus is blunt and bold when I would have ran and asked for a restroom break. He says, why are you trying to put me to the test? But not only is Jesus blunt and bold, he's brilliant. Read with me 16 and 17. He'd asked for a denarius and they brought him one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? Holding up the coin, the the Roman silver coin, the coin that is used to pay the census tax. You couldn't pay with any other coin. You had to pay with this particular coin. And they said to him, that's Caesar's. Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Now, just so you know, if you're new to Christianity, if you're new to the gospel, if you're trying to figure out church, if you're trying to understand what does Jesus think about politics, taxes, and government, here is your foundational text. It is from this that the New Testament writers will build a house of understanding as to how the New Testament church relates to governing authorities, politicians, and taxes. It's right here. If you want to study this more on your own, I'm going to recommend, if you have a pen, write this down. I'm not going to teach from these passages, but I'll allude to them. Romans 13, 1 through 7. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 6. Titus 3, 1, 2, and following. And 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. So they brought him a denarius. It's a day's wage for the poorest laborer. And he said to them, whose likeness or whose image and whose inscription is on this? And so if you were to look at a denarius, maybe you have in a museum or online or in a book, on the front of it is a raised picture of, Siberia, of Tiberius Caesar. On the front is the image of King Tiberius. And in the inscription around the coin is written this, Tiberius Caesar Divi Augusti Filius Augustus. In Latin, that reads Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of the divine Augustus. Literally, using our language, Tiberius, king, son of God. And if you were to flip the coin over on the backside, you would see this, Pontifex Maximus, high priest. If you were to hold a denarius in your hand, you would read on it, Tiberius, king, son of God, high priest. And so Jesus says, whose image and whose inscription is on this? And the trappers are trapped. They say, that's Caesar's possessive. Caesar owns that coin. His image and his inscription is on it. It's his. And then Jesus says to those who pulled the denarius out of their pocket, render to Caesar Caesar's and render to God, God's. They said, should we pay, give? Should we give taxes originating with us? And Jesus uses a different vocabulary. He says, render, not give, but give back. Not pay, but pay back. And Jesus avoids the trap. Caesar has legitimate claim and so does God and you should give to each his rightful claim. 
There are rights of Caesars that do not infringe on the rights of God, but, but are indeed ordained by God. But at the same time, render or give back or restore or repay God with the things that are his. And so Jesus is saying the coin in your pocket is proof that you enjoy some benefits from Rome. You have roads that you travel on, educational systems that you grew up in, military protection that you rest in, acknowledge what belongs to him. But see, here's the kicker. They didn't really ask about God, did they? Jesus goes on and says, render to God what's God's. We say, what's God's? Well, the logic of the passage is this. If someone's image is on something, they own it. If someone's image or likeness is on something, they own it. And so what is God's image and likeness on? Or better said, who has God created in his likeness and stamped with his image to reflect him and his glory? Us, humans. One of the foundational teachings of the Bible is that we have been created in the image and likeness of God, that he stamps his image on us to reflect his glory both to the world that is seen and the world that is unseen. And he is saying, you don't own anything. Sound familiar like last week? Give back to Caesar whatever is Caesar's, but give back to God whatever is God's. Now listen, we've got to keep going fast. Here are some summary principles on the New Testament teaching on government, authority, taxes, and politicians. If you'll read those, those passages I gave you, and if you'll begin to see the foundation of that is in Jesus' teaching here, you'll see that the church believes in submission and not rebellion. Paul and Peter, four times in four different letters, use the word submit when talking about governing authorities. They always talk about the governing authority, that it is instituted by God. Paul even talks about governing authorities in Rome. This is amazing. He talks about governing authorities in Rome as if they're ministers of God. Same word for pastors. He says, when you rebel, you rebel not against the human authority, you rebel against the divine authority that put the human authority there. And he calls us for the sake of Jesus to submit. The next thing we learn if we read those passages and what we see in this text is that we give honor and not homage. Honor and not homage. In 1 Peter 2.17, Peter's talking about governing authorities. He's talking about the emperors and the governors. And he says, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. That's talking about the church, the believers. Fear or worship God. Honor the emperor. The important part there is render to, what, to God what is God's. He deserves worship. Render to Caesar what he deserves. He deserves honor. Last thing we read and we understand from this text is that we look to give governing authorities peace, but not our hope. In 1 Timothy, Paul writes to the young church planter, I want prayers said for kings and all in authority, and I want you to live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And at the same time, Paul writes to the Romans, the governing authorities are there to punish evil and approve good. 
And what Paul is teaching us is that government cannot defeat evil and government cannot produce good. And so if you go back to our three and you see the brilliant, nuanced, complex, amazing teaching of Jesus that says to the zealots, you want violent revolt. Live at peace. Caesar has some rightful claims. To the Herodians, you're giving to Caesar what is God's. You're giving him homage and hope. Give God what is his due. And to the Pharisees, give to Caesar what is rightfully his, prayer, submission, and honor, not hypocrisy. I wish we could take about 30 minutes. I honestly thought about making this sermon primarily about politics, government, and authority, but I realize I'm young and dumb and really inexperienced, so I thought that might be a dangerous thing to do. But this is absolutely fascinating to me. One minor point of application. If you were a Republican during the Reagan days, my guess is you gave too much homage and too much hope that belongs to God and not the president he put in place called Reagan. And my guess is during the Clinton or Obama days, if you're a Democrat, you're giving a little too much homage and a little too much hope. That the gospel is the only thing that has the power to defeat evil and produce righteousness. Governing authorities have not been given that power by God. And my guess is during the Reagan days, see how I skipped George W.? No, and I didn't mean that, do that on purpose. I just think about Reagan. I think the glory years for my parents was the Reagan days. During the Reagan days, my guess is if you were a Democrat, you were probably not honoring and submitting and believing that God was at work and what he was doing. My guess is for those who call you, those of you who call yourself Republicans right now, you think maybe God is doing what he's doing by making them fall on their faces and then we'll get the election back. Very little honor given there. Just maybe a place to talk about this in your own relationships. So we've seen that Jesus is bold and blunt. He's the king with ultimate authority. We've seen that he's brilliant and wise. He's the prophet with all ultimate truth. But what about those of us who are not bold and not brilliant? What about those of us who are scared and often foolish? What about those of us who find ourselves trapped day in and day out. What about us, uh, people who haven't prayed for, honored, and lived dignified in paying our taxes? What about us, the people who have paid homage to and hoped for too much in government? What about us, the people who haven't given their lives to God but have rebelled against him? We'll give him 10%, but not the whole thing. If Jesus were just bold and brilliant, we'd be in trouble. If he were just bold and not beautiful, we would be scared of him and we wouldn't be able to worship him. If he were just brilliant and not beautiful, we would be in awe of him and we would not be able to learn from him. But this text tells us something absolutely stunning and beautiful about Jesus. And when I read it, this is the part that makes me marvel at him. This is what makes me say, no way. How could that possibly be? This makes me say, that's off the hook. This makes me say, That's rad. Go back to verse 15. The second half of it. Jesus says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. 
He asks for a coin. The question is this, why didn't he fish in his pocket and grab one? Here's the point. He doesn't have a denarius in his pocket. The true king of the universe doesn't have a denarius to his name. So someone gives him a denarius and this is what he reads. He says, who is this? Some commentators actually believe he had no idea who Tiberius was. They take his question for face value. I don't know. We can't know. But he did live in Nazareth and he was up in Galilee an awful lot. And he's like, who's this? And he reads, Tiberius, king, son of God, high priest. Now there's some irony. The king of all kings, the true son of God, the great high priest that brings an end to all high priests doesn't have a coin to his name. And he reads on a coin made by a human he created that that human thinks they are God. So maybe he doesn't have a coin in his pocket because he doesn't have pockets. Or maybe he wants to prove to them that they pulled a denarius out of their own pocket and so they should pay taxes. But I want to tell you that the ultimate, eternal, universal king is on the road to naked bankruptcy. He says of himself in Matthew, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Whether he's bankrupt now or will be in a few days, he's on the road to naked bankruptcy. Friends, he's giving the life we have not. He's giving the life we could not. He's giving the life we will not apart from him. Think about Tiberius and Jesus next to one another. Sort of like if you're an NBA fan, it's like watching Jordan at his Hall of Fame induction ceremony and Robinson. If you're a fan, you know exactly what I'm saying. Look at this. Caesar conquers people and he becomes rich and they become poor. Jesus, the man that we're here worshiping this morning, conquers people and he becomes poor and they become rich. Caesar conquers people and they die in service to him. Jesus conquers people and he dies in service to them. On the cross, Jesus gives up everything. Life, wealth, power, his throne, his office, not a denarius, not a single day's wage to his name. He gives up his home so that we can have it. He gives up his wealth so that we can have it. He gives up his glory and power and authority so we can enjoy it with him forever. Let's pray. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. How vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are and what you have done. We thank you for your boldness as a king, your brilliance as a prophet, and your beauty as a priest. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have done what we could not. You have given us what we could not earn. You do in us what we cannot do on our own. We pray that this morning that you would take some of this and you would trap us. I ask that this morning you would say, take some of this text and you would trap me for coming to you and trying to get you to agree with me or get you to prove to me that I don't like you. Would you forgive me for trying to trap you? 
And at the same time, Jesus, I pray that something of this text will go deep into our hearts and cause us to worship because it's marvelous, it's astonishing, it's astounding, it's beautiful. In your name we pray. One last thing about the text to take us into communion. In the ancient Near East, when a king wanted to establish his kingdom, he would put his inscription, his title, on everything. He would build a summer palace, a winter palace, a spring palace, and a fall palace in different locations in their dominion and put their inscription, much like Tiberius Caesar, son of God, high priest, all over it to remind the people there that even when the king was not gone, that the king owned that palace, owned that land, and owned them. Tiberius Caesar, we know from history, had palaces, coins, harems. He had a really cool vehicle that was this ornate palace-like structure that would be held up by lots of men and it would carry him around so he didn't have to walk. And all over it was his inscription. And isn't it amazing that our king came and he had no throne, he had no palace, he had no pillow. He had no vineyard. He had nothing. Did you know the only other time in the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospels and in the Bible that the word inscription comes up besides this place here, talking about Caesar? We're gonna come across it in a few months when we read that on Jesus' cross, they wrote the inscription, King of the Jews that in order to take us to his eternal dominion and his eternal kingdom and his consummated new heavens and new earth where his name will be everywhere, in order to take us there, he took himself to the cross with his title upon it. One day we will partake in an exquisite, extraordinary feast, a royal banquet like nothing we have ever experienced before. But this is what communion is. Communion is the idea and the truth that to get us to that table, our king put himself on this table. But that bread right there, by his words of institution, that bread is his body. It's his perfect, whole, beautiful life ripped apart on the cross. And that blood, the wine, the blood in that goblet is his bloodshed in his humiliation, in his beatings, his crucifixion, and death. And that we get in to that glorious place where the lion of the tribe of Judah sits on the throne, but he appears as a lamb who was slain. We get in because he put his title on a cross and himself on a table. That's what communion is. This is who should take communion not simply if you're just marveling at Jesus. <laughs> the men who marvel at him in this time and place will in Luke chapter 23 tell 
Pilate. They say, this man told us to revolt against you and not pay tribute. They lied about Jesus. It is possible to marvel at him and not yield to him as king. This table is for those of us who give him our sword and bend our knee and by faith and with an extreme gratitude say, I'm giving back the life I owe that you have given me in the gospel. Fast falls the eventide The darkness deepens Lord with me When others help us Fail and 